All right. Good morning, New Life Manitou. <laughs> I love it. Find your spot. Good morning. My name is Glenn Packiam. I am a friend of Joe and Erica Kirkendall's. I have known them for a very long time. I, um, I've been on staff at New Life Church. This is coming up on this summer will be 21 years, um, which is getting to be a bit of a long time. <laughs> I, uh, I have the privilege of serving as um, one of the associate senior pastors at the church. And so the great joy of what I get to do is I get to sort of oversee all the off-site congregations, um, which is New Life East and New Life Manitou and Nueva Vida, our a Spanish congregation, and uh, a new one that is launching in a couple weeks, New Life Midtown with the, through a merger with Antioch Church. And of course, one of the other offsite ones, New Life Downtown, which I uh, serve as the lead for, although increasingly uh, I have an associate there, Jason, who's doing more and more, doing such a great job leading that. New Life Downtown is, I think, coming up next year on, well, this year would be nine years. Let's just say that this year will be nine years uh, of existing, which is kind of fun. We went through a bit of a rough thing with um, being dislocated during COVID. Uh, we were New Life Downtown, not meeting downtown, you know, for a, a very long time. And, and gratefully, if, several weeks ago, we were able to get in uh, back in downtown, but this time uh, through a hotel there, as opposed to the school. The school's not uh, yet opened up for rentals and all of that. But all to say, I really love the purity, the innocence, the camaraderie, the teamwork that happens at off-site congregations because with the exception of Nueva Vida, no, no one else has a building that they own. And so it takes a team to, to pitch in. And it just, it reminds me that church is a family, that church is a group of people that are not sort of coming together to consume content, but are coming together to serve one another and to serve the Lord together. And New Life Manitou, you guys are the picture of that in my mind. Every time I, I meet with Joe pretty regularly, we're all we're in meetings together during the week. And every time we're in a meeting and Joe shares a story about Manitou, I think, you guys are the church, man. Like, you guys are really doing it. So congratulations, New Life Manitou, on four years, right? Your four-year anniversary happened uh, two, three weeks ago. Congratulations on that. And I want to say how much I love your pastor, your pastors, Joe and Erica. They are incredible people. I've known them for a long time. I knew Joe back in the mill in the college ministry. And I was saying this to a group of people the other day. I, I have admired Joe's focus. He was the first one among our kind of cohort of staff people uh, to pursue graduate theological education and then went on and got his doctorate. And he's Dr. Joe Kirkendall. And, and uh, we're, we're just so, yeah, we're so, we're so impressed, I know. But I've always admired his focus. Like when Joe knows that God has called him to something, he focuses on it and he goes for it and he stays faithfully after it. And Erica, I knew Erica when she came to the New Life School of Worship as a student. And there's like this fierceness to Erica, a fierceness for the, for the presence of God, a, a passion for for seeing the people of God really seek the Lord. So I'm enjoying here, being here this morning and seeing Erica lead you in worship. You know that this comes from a place of deep passion for her, for discipleship, for formation, uh, for the presence of God itself. And sometimes people take one or two of those things. Well, I want the experience, but I don't want the discipleship. Erica's one of those people that fuses those two passions together, you know. So anyway, I admire your leaders. I'm so grateful for them. They're faithful faithful shepherds. 
And it's a joy for me to be here today. Um, we could just pray right now. I mean, that, that was, uh, you know, not quite the word of the Lord yet. Driving up, driving up this morning, I was uh, listening to some worship music in my car and driving in. And just as soon as I got close to the exit here, just began to, to be overwhelmed with the sense of God's presence. And I became uh, so grateful, recognizing that you guys are here, being a witness to the work of God in this place. You know what a remarkable thing that is. One of the, one of the great things about the work of the Lord is he always works with people. Uh, God chooses to do his work through people. This series that we're in is called Everyday Prophets. And the prophets are ordinary people, many of them. Some of them are sort of you know, professional prophets or been around the temple more. But a lot of them are just normal folks that the word of the Lord came to. And it re- it's a reminder to us. The reason we called this series Everyday Prophets is because it's a reminder to us that God wants our participation God wants us to join him in his work. He made us in his image. I mean, in a, in a very real way, the creator God loved you into being. He dreamed of you, and his love for you is the reason you exist today. And then his work in the world, he refuses to do his work in the world that is separate from his people. He's always trying to work with his people. And in a very real way, these prophets are speaking to God's people, calling them back because God's saying, look, I made a commitment to you and I'm not going to veer from this. I'm not going to go find another people. I want you and I want you to get this right and I want to help you get this right. It's, it's what the, the British writer C.S. Lewis called the intolerable compliments where God has given you the compliment of saying, no, I want you. (laughs) And I'm paying attention to your life. And we're like, oh, God, uh, maybe over there. And he's like, no, I'm not quitting on you. And if you've been kind of tracking the series, we started with Hosea, where basically God is saying, I'm not going to quit on you, even when you are unfaithful to me. And I'm not going to recap all the different messages of the prophets, but here we are this morning. We're going to look at the book of Zephaniah. If you've never read the book of Zephaniah, you're in good company. They're not, uh, this is not the section. Yeah, I know, it's not what you thought I was going to say. This is not the section of the Bible that, that people just turn to normally, you know. These prophet books, there's 12 of them. They're called minor prophets, not because they're less important, but because they're short. They're shorter books. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they wrote lengthy books. The minor prophets, they were sort of like bloggers. They wrote short. They they wrote short little things, you know. Um, (laughs) they, They never got the full length book deal, but they wrote some blogs, you know. And, and we're paying attention to them, but we don't normally read these books. But in a sense, all 12 of them belong together. And in Jewish tradition, uh, th- this is sometimes called the Book of Twelve, where all 12 of them have something to say together, a compilation of messages. Zephaniah has a few concerns that he wants uh, us to address, but I want to start by uh, telling you a bit of a, a story. Th- this is the time of year where my wife, my wife and I, this summer, will celebrate 20 years of being married. We have four kids. It's wonderful. But this is the time of year where my wife starts to decide to throw stuff away from our house. I don't know if any of you get this hankering around March. Spring cleaning. 
And all of a sudden, I'll come home, you know, or, or maybe it's the weekend, and I thought we were going to have a relaxing weekend, but all of a sudden, I'll go up to our room, and I'll see piles on the floor. I'm like, babe, what's going on? She's like, I'm just going through your stuff that I, I notice you don't wear anymore. I'm like, I mean, really? And then most of the time, she's right. Like, okay, that should go to the Goodwill, and then, we're, and then, and then now I can't relax, you know, because I got to do spring cleaning now, too. And so we're making piles, and there's bags of donation stuff or, or throwaway stuff. But every once in a while, I'll be persuaded to throw away something, and then I'll think, doggone it, I actually wanted that. And then I go out and buy it again. <laughs> so it totally defeats the purpose. You're trying to like, thin stuff out, but then you, you miss it after a while. And like, I, I, I want that, the, you know, that sweatshirt again, or I want to go. You know. I am the worst when it comes to technology. I don't know if any of you guys, you know, or you know, it doesn't have to be guys, I guess, but typically this is a disease that afflicts men, you know where you see a gadget or a thing. And, and when I was, you know, more actively as a musician, it was always gear for me. You know, it was like, I got to get this guitar pedal, you know. I got to get this amp. I got to get a different kind of capo. Why do you need a different kind of capo? I don't know. I need a different kind of capo. Uh, maybe for Joe, it's like climbing gear, you know. Like, I got to go to this REI garage sale. I need this, you know. Um, there, there's just these things that we convince ourselves that we need. We keep thinking we can be minimalist. Maybe some of you actually are. But we keep finding ways to add. And partly it's because we're, we have this underlying anxiety that there's going to come this moment that we're going to need something and we're not going to have it. You also face this when you go on a trip. I don't know if you've been on trips yet. Maybe you've been camping and you're like, this time we're going to camp. We're going to be minimalist. And then you're like, doggone, I forgot the, you know, inflatable stand-up paddleboard or whatever. And we should have also brought the, you know, wireless speaker for music at the campfire. Whatever it is. You're, the, 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 the tendency to keep adding stuff comes from our underlying anxiety that one day we're going to need something and we're not going to have it. This also happens to us spiritually, where we sort of believe that we might need more than what we actually have in God himself. Zephaniah 1 verse 1 starts out, gives us a little introduction to this man. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Now, as the book of, Ze- the book of Zephaniah follows a very predictable pattern it, it gives us a warning of judgment, there's a call to repentance, and then there's a promise of salvation. Uh, if you're looking for a template for these minor prophets, this is pretty much it. A warning, a call to repent, and then a promise of salvation or restoration. But Zephaniah shows us something a little bit, a little bit different than what we've seen so far. And he tells us, they tell us in this book where he's come. He's come during the time of Josiah. Now, that might mean nothing to us. You might say, well, great, it's fine. I mean, I don't, I don't understand what that was. Maybe, maybe for, for American history buffs, we'd say, well, this happened post-Civil War. And you'd go, oh, Reconstruction Era, or something like that. And you'd say, okay, this was after post-Cold War, or this was post-9-11. And you're like, okay, I think I understand what's happening. Zephaniah is post-Manasseh. And Manasseh was probably one of the most wicked kings of Judah. Let me give you a little bit of a story from him. This is found in 2 Kings 21. 2 Kings 21, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. By ancient uh, uh, rule standards, 55 years is a long time for a king. 
a long time. I'm reading a, I'm reading a little history book, narrative history book of the medieval kings in England, the, the, the Wars of the Roses. And you're, 55 years is a long time for one dude to be on the throne. Verse 2, and what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. What is it that he did that was so despicable? Here we go, verse 3. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. His father tore down altars. He, go, he went ahead and rebuilt them. He said, no, let's, let's put them back up. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah. An Asherah is a pole to a particular kind of God. And as Ahab, king of Israel, had done and, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Who's Ahab? Remember, the, remember this prophet named Elijah that called down fire from heaven? Ahab was that king. In other words, they're talking about Vanessa, and they're like, this guy's so bad, it's making us think of another really bad king named Ahab. And then he says he built altars in the house of the Lord. It's one thing to build God, uh, altars to other gods. It's another thing to do them in the house of Yahweh. He does, them, he does this in the temple, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord and this is a despicable, despicable line. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. It's important to know this context because otherwise you step into Zephaniah and you're like, man, God is so angry all the time. This is the backdrop. And, and we have to understand that sins against God always end up being sins against others. And the reverse is also true. Sins against others end up being sins against God. So it's one thing to say, oh, you know, Vanessa, you just kind of, you, you broke some technicalities about some fussy rules about worship. No, 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 no. You began worshiping other gods and those gods demanded that you sacrifice your own son and you killed him too. In other words, idolatry is always bad news for everyone involved. It's always bad news for everyone involved. There's no such thing as saying, well, I mean, I may have sinned against the Lord, but I didn't hurt anyone. Give it time. The longer you persist in sins against the Lord, it becomes sins against others. And the underlying belief in Judah at this time is that God was not enough. See, in the ancient world, Israel was unique for a number of reasons, but Israel was unique in that they believed you only needed one God. Now, in the, For us, we're like, well, yeah, I mean, either you believe in God or you don't believe in God. But in the ancient world, everyone believed in the gods. It was just a question of which God and for what purposes. So if you were living in that region of the world at the time, you'd say, well, uh, listen, I'm a farmer, so I need to worship the God of the rain. And then I need to worship the God of the grain. And then if you're going to battle, you're like, well, now we need to go worship to this God so he'll give us victory in battle. And then if you're hoping to have children, you're like, well, now we need to worship this God for fertility. And then now we need to worship this God for wine so that we can have feasts. And you had 10, 12, 30, whatever. You just keep adding gods for as many needs as you had. Anytime you had a need you would have a God. But the first thing God is trying to say through Zephaniah is this. God is sufficient for all our needs. God is sufficient for all our needs. Why is God so against, and the technical term for this is religious syncretism, where you're mixing 
the worship of lots of different gods together. Why is God against syncretism? Because we're believing the lie that he isn't what we need. We don't, we, we're acting like he is not sufficient for our needs. Now, you listen to this this morning, and you're like, well, that's, thanks for that history lesson, Glenn. I appreciate that trivia. Maybe I'll use it someday at a party. Probably not. But, you know, like, what does this have to do with me? Like, I don't worship other gods. I grew up in Malaysia. My, my dad grew up in a family that was Hindu. The Hindus famously have lots and lots and lots of gods. And it's easy, if you've traveled to Asia or different parts of the world, it's easy to identify idols that are physical. And it's tempting to believe that here in the West we don't have idols. But we do. They're just not visible. An idol is anything that we count on to be the source. And it's bound to disappoint us over and over again. The problem is not that you love other things. You, we're supposed to love other things. But there was a, there was a great church bishop in, from North Africa in the 400s named Augustine. And Augustine said, when you love created things or other people, just recognize that what you love in them is actually from God. And the goodness that you enjoy in friendship or in food or in laughter or in church or all, the goodness that you see in that person or in that thing that you're enjoying, that's from God. And so Augustine was like, just remember that you're actually not loving Joe in an absolute sense. You're loving God whose goodness is manifest in Joe. Does that make sense? And idolatry, though, says, yeah, I need this, I need this, I need this, because those things are the source itself. Idolatry is taking the step further than saying, I like this, and I like fishing, and I like camping. Idolatry says, no, 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 that is the sufficiency that is a, a thing that will meet my needs. Now, here's how we do this. We like Jesus for the afterlife. We like Jesus because he's the Lord of the afterlife. He'll stamp our passport for heaven and get us out of that other place. But we kind of act like I got Jesus for the afterlife and I got everything else for this life. And so we say, well, th this is... This is my source of provision. And, and, and this is my source for my values about this. And, and this is my source. And so if you've ever wondered why Christians have been so uh, divided today in talking about uh, our actions in the world, one of the reasons is because we've pigeonholed Jesus to be one God among many. And we're like, well, I, I, I've got that, but I really listen to other voices to guide my decisions about sexuality. Or I listen to other voices to guide my decisions about money. Or I listen to other voices to guide my decisions about work. Like, but Jesus, he's, he, he, Jesus is cool because he forgives my sins and will make sure I go to heaven and stuff. That's our equivalent of adding a whole bunch of idols. It's, not, it's failing to believe that God is actually enough. And God's response to that, verse 2 of Zephaniah 1, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. God's like, if you're going to do that, I'll just get rid of all of it. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble of the, with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal. 
and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the hosts of heaven, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet also swear by Milcom, another God, those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire him. God's saying, look, if it's going to be that way, I'll dry up everything else so you'll recognize that nothing else is the source. Only I am the source. If we're honest, I, I, I don't like to say things like, you know, did God cause this or did God allow this and all of that. But I do know that God works through and in the midst of every situation in life. And if we're honest, this last year, the, the, the important question is not, did God cause COVID? Or, the important question is, what is God trying to say to me in the midst of this? How is God at work in the midst of this? And maybe if we're honest, a lot of us could say, I think God is reminding me that he is the source. Not ultimately my job, not ultimately my health, not ultimately this or this or this. And all the other things that I acted were actually, I acted like were, I treated like fountainheads were actually just riverbeds. The things that we treated like fountainheads were actually just riverbeds. It's not the source of our joy, not the source of our life, but it's the condiment of it. God used it. But in those moments, God says, look, if, if, if you're going to continue to mistake the sources, it might be a time when I dry it all up, sweep it all away. Zephaniah, the way it's structured, is a little bit like a two-act play, and chapter one is act one. God is sufficient, and God wants us to know it. Then there's this little intermission, interlude. It's chapter two, and I'm just going to list it really quickly. The interlude in chapter two says this, that God is sovereign over all the nations. Not only is he sufficient, but he's the sovereign. And you see this because Zephaniah kind of plays a little bit of a poetic game here, a little poetic entrapment. He starts to list God's judgment from all the other nations. So maybe the people of Judah are squirming a little bit. They're like, Zephaniah, I read your first blog. It's a little harsh, man. Like, seems like you're, you know, like, what, where, what, what are we doing, you know? And Zephaniah's like, cool, cool, I'll follow up with another one. And so his next blog is, is, is about Philistia, Philistia in uh, Zephaniah 2, 4 through 7. And, and you can see, he, you, can, you can put these slides up, you, you can see he starts to go to the west, Philistia. Then he, he follows it up with another micro blog, maybe a little Instagram post about Moab to the east and how God's going to judge Moab. And the, and the people reading it are like, nah, that's more like it, Zephaniah. Like that, that, go get them, you know. And then he talks about the people to the south, Cush. Then he talks about that evil empire to the north, Assyria. You remember Jonah was about Assyria. Nahum was about Assyria. This is, this is, everyone's reading his blogs now and they're like, okay, Zephaniah, now we're talking. Focus your attention on the real baddies in the world. And then he goes, bullseye. Zephaniah 3, woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. This is the prophet's technique of saying, God knows that what they're doing is wrong. God knows what they're doing is wrong. God knows that what And all those other things that, you know that game we play in our culture today called whataboutism? That God wants to talk to you about this issue in your heart, and you're like, yeah, God. But what about... Like, those people are, they're a lot worse, right? And he's like, no, no, that, they're bad. Thank you, God. And they're bad. I knew it, God. And they're bad. I knew it, exactly. And then he goes, and now let's get back to the subject at hand, you. And you're like, uh-oh. 
That's the little intermission, if you will, the interlude in Zephaniah. And then you get to Zephaniah 3. The third and final word of the Lord through Zephaniah. God is the Savior who sets us right. He's the Savior who sets us right. I want to read you a large chunk of Zephaniah 3. Verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Verse 11. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. And I will remove from your midst your proud, exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. Some translations refer to this as a holy remnant, a group of people that remain. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall not do injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. God will purify. God will protect. None will make them afraid. And then hang with me for five more verses here. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. I want you to catch the tenderness in these next few verses that I'm about to read. Here's God saying, I'm sufficient. How can you go to all these other idols and other gods? And then he says, I'll sweep it all away. And we're tempted to kind of say, man, God's just ticked. And miss that what God wants as his end goal is a people for himself. A pure, holy people. And so God, God's not saying, I'm going to sweep it all away and get away from me. He's saying, and I'm going to come be in your midst. I'm going to be with you. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And then I love this image in verse 18. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you'll no longer suffer reproach. Behold, I, at the time I will deal with you all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I'll change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I'll bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. If you ever find yourself in a place where you say, God, I, <laughs> I'm kind of stuck. Like, I've got myself in a, in a bad spot, and I don't know what to do. Maybe the first part of Zephaniah is... is the conviction of saying, yeah, God, man, I, we, we've, we've, we've gone off track here. We've, we've made a muddle of things and, and we're stuck. What I love about Zephaniah and why it's such good news for us is that he doesn't end by saying, so try and do better, would you? He doesn't end by saying, so get your act together. I'll come check on you later. He doesn't do that. He says, I'll come. And save you. I'll purify you. I'll protect you. I'll gather up the lame and the outcast. I'll sing over you. I'll dance over you. 
This is the image of a God who does not find us in our mess and say, oh boy, okay. <laughs> this is a God who says, oh my goodness, I got to you know. My wife and I have four kids and, you know, different ones of them were, were, um, were different as babies, you know. So our first child, we were talking about this last night with the kids, our first child, maybe because of our own anxieties as parents, who knows, you know. <laughs> Um, was not a great sleeper and, and really needed to be held a lot. And, and uh, uh, you know, I would wake up and hold Sophia while after Holly had nursed her so that Holly could get another, you know, hour or two. And I'm like holding Sophia like this. And, and then we found, uh, you know, those things where the kind of those gentle, gentle swing rocker things. You know, like, oh, thank God for that, you know. Um, by the time we have grandkids, they'll be like a robot that's doing it for you, you know. <laughs> It's like keeps getting more and more advanced. But the worst moment is when you hear a child, you know, toddler or baby screaming and in the middle of the night and you go over and and you find that, you know, they, they've gotten sick or something, they've thrown up in their crib and you're like, oh no. So now you gotta, you know. But there is no parent. <laughs> well, there is no good parent <laughs> who would go in and find their one-year-old or whatever, who's sick and thrown up and said, huh, I told you not to eat that candy. Or like, what'd you do? Did you overeat on that, you know, mashed avocados or whatever? Well, serves you right. I'll check on you in the morning. There's no parent who does that. Parent comes in and says, oh my goodness, what's happened here? Cleans it up. And usually after that moment, the child is just so upset by what's happened. And so oftentimes as a parent, not only do you have to clean them up, but then you have to calm them down. And you start rocking them, and you start singing to them. I mean, we, we were finding all kinds of different tips and techniques. Like maybe if I hold them like this, maybe if I sing this song, maybe if it's like that, you know. And then you find the position and the song that works, and you're like, okay, let's just keep that one going. This is the, the lasting and final image that Zephaniah gives the people of God, about God. God is sufficient. He's all that you need. God is the sovereign. He's going to judge all the nations. And God is the one who will save you. Friends, when God finds you in the mess, he doesn't come to scold. He comes to save. He comes to purify. He comes to clean you up. And he comes to rock you in his arms. And I, I know as parents, there are so many moments when the, 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 you know, we are like those babies in God's arms. He's like trying to calm us down. And we're like, ah, my God. And he's like, shh, I'm with you. But I don't have it. And he's like, shh, I can't. But Lord, this isn't working out. Shh, I know, I'm here, I'm here. And we have all these ways of flailing against God and saying, but I don't have this and I don't have that and this isn't working out and my dreams aren't coming true and the marriage isn't happening and my kids aren't following you and all of this stuff that we thought was supposed to be the source of our happiness and God, 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 God. And he's like, I know, I know, I know. And your cry is safe with me, but I am your source and your savior, the one who will soothe your soul. I'm the one. And ultimately, we see what Zephaniah said about God. We see it in Jesus. In Jesus, we see the God who is sufficient, the God who is sovereign, the God who is saving. Think about that scene where Jesus comes to purify the temple. Maybe he's fulfilling what God, through Zephaniah, said. 
I'll purify the temple. Jesus came to do that. Jesus healing the lame and the leper, doing exactly what God said in Zephaniah 3 he would do. Jesus saving us by taking judgment itself on himself. This morning as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, as Christians we know we, we read the book of Zephaniah, but we read it forward through the lens of Jesus. And we see this picture of God and we're like, oh God, how do you do that? How will you actually save us while also dealing with our sin? And the only answer to that as Christians is Jesus. How did God save us while also judging? Oh, it's because he took the judgment on himself. It's because he took the punishment on himself. It's because he dealt with it in his own body so that what we can experience is the purifying, protecting, cleansing, saving work of God. Did you bow your heads with me this morning? The scripture tells us in Zephaniah 3, verse 14, the response of the people. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice. Exult with all your heart. Our response to the word of the Lord is twofold. It's repentance and rejoicing. We repent because we say, God, we are so prone to mistake other things as the source and forget that you are all sufficient. But after we repent, we rejoice because you've always been the God who saves.